Hello, and welcome to the Rockefeller Center's podcast, Rocky Talk. My name is Blake McGill, and I'm a member of the class of 2022 here at Dartmouth College. And today I'm joined by Dr. Nicholas Christakis. Dr. Christakis is the Sterling Professor of Social and Natural Science at Yale University. His work is in the field of network science, biosocial science, and behavioral genetics. He directs the Human Nature Lab and is the co-director of the Yale Institute for Network Science. He was elected to the National Academy of Medicine in 2006, the American Association for the Advancement of Science in 2010, and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 2017. And he is the author of the 2020 book, Apollo's Arrow, The Profound and Enduring Impact of the Coronavirus on the Way We Live. Dr. Kosakis, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Blake, and call me Nicholas. Okay. (laughs) One thing your book does really well is offer the reader a historical background on epidemics and pandemics. So just to get us started, I was wondering if you could offer um, some sort of insight into how the COVID-19 pandemic of today is similar to and different from those public health crises that we're familiar with, but don't really understand, like the Spanish flu of 1918, for example. Well, I think, you know, many people listening to this are aware of the fact that the way we have come to live right now seems alien and unnatural and strange. But it's very important to understand that plagues are not new to our species. They're just new to us. You know, we think this is crazy, but uh, plagues have been afflicting human beings for thousands of years. Plagues are in the Bible. They're in Homer. They're in Shakespeare. They're in Cervantes. And, uh, and so it's this type of broader perspective helps us to understand you know, what is the nature of the experience that human beings have during times of plague? Now, our particular time in the crucible, the plague that we're facing, is actually not as deadly as some of these ancient threats. We should count ourselves lucky in many regards. But many of the features that have been seen during times of plague are apparent now. For example, that plagues are a time of grief. They take our lives, they take our livelihoods, they take our way of life. And many people listening to this are probably feeling sense of loss of one kind or another. They've missed opportunities if they're a young person to have a normal college experience or to have normal dating experiences. Or if you're in elementary school, you don't have normal social experiences. You're not in your school. If you're a grown-up, you maybe lost your job, for example, if you're a, you know, a, a middle-aged person. Uh, or you know someone who died, for example. So, uh, so, they're, so they're a time of loss, and they always have been. Um, plagues are a time of fear. People, there's a lot of fear uh, during times of plague. They're also a time of denial and lies. We've seen all of that in the COVID-19 pandemic. We've seen our leaders deny that the plague is afflicting us. We've seen people on the street deny it. We've seen the spread of lies and misinformation and superstitions. There were the same thing happening during bubonic plague in the 14th century in Europe. This is nothing new about the spread of lies. And we see blame of others. You know, there's always a desire to blame someone else during the... uh, bubonic plague, there was anti-Semitism. During the HIV epidemic, it was blaming gay people or IV drug users or people from Haiti, for instance. Always there's this desire to blame others. In this COVID-19 pandemic, it's let's blame immigrants or you know someone else. So anyway, in answer to your question, there's so many features about the social experience of having a plague that are the same now as they ever were. On your last point that you were just beginning to make, Um, Obviously, there's been a lot of strife that has derived from the pandemic, Um, anti-vaccination, anti-masking, 
Much of this has been fueled by the negative partisanship and political polarization that we're all too familiar with here in the United States within, I would say, the last decade or two. Um, in your chapter on us and called Us and Them in Apollo Zero, you write, as if the germ itself were not dangerous enough, we have to worry about the fact that we might turn against each other. Has polarization happened in other such public health crises? Why and what can we do to reverse its course? No, I don't think the polarization is a product of the plague, but I think it's a predicate for the current plague. Um, you know, the, the virus has struck us at a particular moment in the history of our country where we are vulnerable, especially vulnerable. We we have uh, century high levels, depending on how you count it, of economic inequality in our society. As you mentioned, Blake, we have the tremendous levels of political polarization that preceded the impact of the virus. But we, 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 we have had a kind of anti-elitism in our society lately, which manifests itself as well as an anti-expertise. You know, everyone thinks that they're an expert. They think their own lived experience is the most important thing. It's a kind of subjective reality rather than a understanding of the objective reality around us. So people people think that they know as much as experts in part because they distrust experts because of this anti-elitism. Uh, we've lost the capacity for nuance in our society. People, we think things are black or white or, you know, you're with me or you're against me, the kind of spirit of compromise, the kind of recognition that life is complex. Things are not often so trivial. All of these things were features of our intellectual discourse even before the epidemic struck. And the epidemic, the germ, you know, not not consciously, obviously, but the germ benefited or exploited these weaknesses. Um, and our political polarization was one of them. You know, other countries did not politicize mask wearing. But in our country, masks came to be seen either as a symbol of liberty and bravery or virtue and neighborliness. You know, um, but they're just a barrier to, to stop, you know, to stop droplets. Uh, there was no reason for them to be politicized. And yet we foolishly did that. I have to say the evidence on the utility of mask wearing is overwhelming, uh, just as a scientific matter. And, uh, and that the primary reason you wear a mask is not just to protect yourself, but also because this virus is capable of asymptomatic transmission to protect others. And this and so therefore, wearing a mask is a kind of um, uh, is a kind of uh, a social good. And, and our our political culture has long understood that you are free to do what you want with your own body. But you are not free to impose risks on others. So you can't speed on the highway, not so much because we care that you might kill yourself. We regulate speeding because you're not allowed to kill someone else. Uh we regulate smoking in public places, not so much because we want to protect you from the consequences of smoking, although we do, we care about our citizens, but because you have no right to impose the risk on others. And analogously, this is why we might regulate masking or vaccinating, because you might be, choose not to be vaccinated, but you could be an asymptomatic carrier. You do not have the right to spread a contagious disease. This has been well understood for a very long time in our society and in our jurisprudence. And in our jurisprudence. So, Anyway, so so yes, unfortunately, this the virus has exploited these weaknesses, including our political polarization. To your point about vaccinations, obviously those have also become politicized. Um, but it seemed like we were just kind of getting our footing 
in terms of a lot of states are now offering vaccinations to 16 plus. President Biden has made it clear that any adult who wants one needs to be able to have access to one by April 19th. And then yesterday we learned that the FDA was putting a pause on the Johnson and Johnson vaccine after six instances involving rare blood clotting. In your book, Apollo Zero, you discuss the questions you had regarding rapid vaccination authorization. How does this news fit into any predictions you may have had? Um, it's all very typical, actually. I mean, the usual standard for safety for vaccines that are in wide distribution are one in a million deaths or serious injuries. And um, and from a public health point of view, that's a no-brainer. In other words, if I offered you a vaccine that had that risk level, you, you should rightly accept a vaccine because your risk of dying from the alternative is vastly higher. In other words, if... Uh, we take one in a million, a risk of one in a million uh, for death or serious complications for flu vaccines or for measles vaccines or tetanus vaccines or all the other vaccines we have, because alternatively, tens of thousands will die. So it's from a public health point of view, it's not a hard decision, nor should it be from an individual point of view. So one in a million, which may be the rate, it's still unclear if the clotting complications are, are or are not causally related to the vaccine, although they could be. But even if they were, we would still regard this as a very safe vaccine. Uh, now, the messaging, now there, this is a little bit more complicated, this situation, because some alternatives in the form of the mRNA vaccines exist that might so far seem safer, but you never know what we'll discover about those vaccines going forward. Um, so it's a, it gets a bit more complicated. And the public messaging is extremely difficult because on the one hand, we don't want this, the state, we don't want the government to withhold information from us. In other words, it would be worse if they unilaterally made the decision that, well, it's one in a million, we don't want to alarm the public, let's not tell them, you know, or let's sugarcoat it. That would be awful. First of all, I don't want that kind of government. Second, it would be really bad for the credibility of the leaders if they then later on, a year from now, said, you know, we knew the vaccine had this rare risk, but we didn't tell you. Then we would never believe anything they said. So they got to tell us, okay? But at the same time, they don't want to cause needless alarm, right? Uh, because actually it would be dumb for us. In fact, some people have estimated that the pause in the vaccines, more people will die of coronavirus as a result in the pause of the distribution of J&J than would otherwise have died from this potentially rare complication. So again, from a public health point of view, it's hard. So so how to do that right? So I think so far the Biden administration has handled this properly. They were aware of this problem. They notified the American people about it. I have confidence in the government experts who are working on this and the FDA and the CDC to sober-mindedly assess it. I hope that they will quickly lift the pause, and I suspect they will. And they will uh, couple that with messaging that says, you know, these are safe vaccines and... Uh, and we have many different vaccines, which you should all feel confident in. They are all safer than our usual metrics. Uh, they are effective. Your risk of death from, from of dying of COVID is much higher if you're unvaccinated than your risk of death of dying of anything is if you are vaccinated. Uh, and maybe they will say if you're a woman between 16 and 50, you, if you have an available alternative, you might want to take that instead of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Or maybe not. You know, you still might... My, my sister, for example, took the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, and uh, she wanted the convenience of a one-shot uh, vaccine. So I hope that that is the kind of messaging we get. And I think that is a sensible from a public health point of view. Absolutely. Um, another controversial point on vaccinations is this concept of vaccine passports, which for those who don't know, has to do with 
maybe an airline, say American Airlines, saying you cannot enter our plane unless you have proven that you have gotten a COVID-19 vaccine. And so I'm curious from your perspective what you think the future of this is. And do you see private companies carrying the mantle on this or is it going to be more of a public um, sector kind of issue? Once again, I don't understand why this is necessarily so controversial. Uh, maybe the use of the term vaccine passport has become a bit problematized. Uh, the, uh, vaccination as a condition of employment is widely used in our society already. Uh, for example, I need to be vaccinated for, I'm a healthcare worker, I need to be vaccinated for the flu every year. I need to prove to my employer that I'm vaccinated. I need to provide a TB test every year. Uh, I, of course, am fully vaccinated against a host of other conditions that I don't need to prove every year, but I need to prove as a condition of employment. If you're a vet tech, you have to get rabies shots. I mean, you know, there are just lots of things. If you're teachers in many schools are required to be vaccinated. Uh, if, if you want to immigrate into our country, uh, we require that you be vaccinated against something like 20 different conditions. Uh, it's not a choice. Uh, many uh, global travelers, many people my age, many journalists working in uh, challenging parts of the world know that as a condition of entry into these other countries, you have to give one of those little yellow cards that the WHO used to issue, uh, you know, your vaccine records. And uh, there's nothing so unusual about having to establish that you're vaccinated for entry into countries or for a, as a condition of employment and so on, I think many many firms will, will not want to take the risk that their customers or their employees will catch the infection at their place of employment and somehow want to sue their employer for failing to provide a safe workplace. So I suspect many firms will take the lead in requiring proof of vaccination for these things. Uh, now, I, I think that there are other kinds of circumstances like con public conveyances like you described, which are in between crossing a border and getting a job, you know, like, and here too, I think that typically in our society, we've allowed private firms to make these decisions about their own property. So if American Airlines wants to be able to say, we are a safe airline, fly with us because we require vaccination, they should be allowed to do that. And some other airline might say, no, you know, never mind though the, you know, mamby pamby desire for vaccination. You know, we let people fly unvaccinated in our contained planes where everyone's exhaling on each other. And, you know, you could pay a premium for that or it could be cheaper, whatever the market would bear. And, you know, that could be what happened in that situation. Now, I suspect there won't be any demand for such an airline, which proves the point that, in fact, vaccination is a sensible thing. Now, of course, there need to be exceptions for people with medical contraindications for vaccination and so on. And we need to deal with the transition period. You know, like, in other words, if you've been trying to get vaccinated and you can't, I don't necessarily think if you otherwise obey other measures... Or maybe there should be a proviso. You can be tested, for instance, instead of being vaccinated or, uh, you know, something else. I don't know, some other procedures. So, so, and ultimately, I think this is only going to be in place for a few years while we cope with the coronavirus pandemic. And I think eventually there won't be any such requirements. Just like right now, we don't require you to provide vac proof of vaccination of any kind to board a plane. You know, if you don't have to show you have been vaccinated for the flu to fly even if you have to show you've been vaccinated for the flu to work as a nurse. So, you know, I think this is where we're headed. And I don't necessarily see it as, from a public health point of view, I don't see it as problematic. Beyond the obvious social cost of uh, illness and death, you also write about some of the issues that related to perhaps... Um, you write that we may lose 10 to 20 years of gains in women's labor market participation. In your in your view, kind of what are going to be the negative consequences of that? And how much of that has to do with this shift to working from home 
children not being in school? Um, is it some kind of combination of those two things? So, you know, I try to discuss a variety of ways that the virus may affect our society directly and indirectly. And the example of women's labor market participation that you make is a kind of indirect and intermediate duration outcome. Uh, and so what the, the and, and we are beginning to see evidence of that. Uh, so what's happening is that, you know, when the economy uh, collapsed, which economies do during times of plague, and they did that for centuries, even before, just to be very clear, what collapses the economy is the virus, not so much the government, because economies collapsed for centuries, even before government said, you know, close schools. There, there was no government saying close schools, but they closed anyway, because people were afraid, or businesses and so on. So, you know, what happened as the virus was gathering a steam in our society is the economy collapsed um, and uh, and schools closed and uh, many couples were trying to figure out how to manage their affairs. Now, let's, of course, there are many different kinds of couples. There are unmarried couples, there are straight couples, there are gay couples, there are single head of family and so on. But still the modal pattern in our society is a heterosexual couple uh, married typically uh, let's say with a couple of kids. So let's take that as just as a working example. So the economy's collapsed, and typically in our society, as it's still the case, men make more money than women do because they're older than women on average, two years older than the typical difference between a husband and a wife is two years because they participate in different occupations than women and so on. So a couple is sitting around their, um, their kitchen table and they're trying to decide if there's a calamity, there's a catastrophe in our society. What should we do for our family? And uh, they say, look, the husband it makes more money than women. It makes sense for him to continue to be a wage earner. And the woman says, I was making less money. And anyway, I don't mind watching the kids as much as you, because on average, that's also true. There's gender differences in attitudes towards child rearing. So this young couple, let's say, makes a sensible decision from the point of view of their family that um, the wife is going to stay home with the children and the husband is going to keep working. And it's every, they're every right to do that. And this is their own life and their own family and their own, you know, they're doing the best they can with the circumstance that they've been dealt. But the problem is that millions of couples make an analogous decision. And as a result of this, what we may see is a real loss in women's labor market participation that uh, lasts for years, right? And we are beginning to see indicators of that. So over the last few decades, women have made tremendous advances in terms of equality of pay, in terms of opening up occupations that previously weren't available to them. Uh, in, so in, and my feeling is that women should be free to choose, of course, any occupation or home arrangement they wish to choose, right? We don't want to restrict on the base of gender what people what people do in our society. So, um, and that might include, however, wanting to stay home with their children. I mean, that is a very sensible and appropriate choice to make. And many women, in fact, ironically, the richer the women are, they are the more likely they are to do that. So typically, highly educated women, there was an incredible study out of the Harvard Business School. Many of these women that graduated from Harvard Business Schools with MBAs, who were typically married to other men who were also extremely wealthy, they often chose to stay at home. Why? Well, because they could, right? I mean, they were millionaires. And so they were able to enact their, let's say, preference in that particular case to stay home with their children. So so actually, this, this socioeconomic stratification of the ability to make these choices also will play out in complicated ways in our society in terms of who makes this. Typically, people at the very bottom of the economic spectrum and at the very top find women find the choice to stay home more rational. 
because at the very bottom, analogously, the kind of work that a woman might get, she'd say, look, you can either work as a waitress as a, at a very low wage or be productive by taking care of your kids at home. Many women would make the choice to stay home with their kids in lieu of that. You know, it's not like a ch- choice between, you know, being an architect, let's say, and, and uh, staying home with your children. So you get this very complicated set of individual decision making and macro social impact of the kind you describe. And then from the point of view of a public policymaker, that would then concern me because I certainly don't want women's labor market opportunities to be degraded in any material way. And so we may find, to sum up, we may find in five or 10 years that when we look back, there had been steady progress over the last 40 years in a variety of indicators of women's labor market participation, which were then retarded by the pandemic. Um, And I think that we're beginning to see evidence of that. As a final question, we can look towards the final chapter of your book, which is titled How Plagues End. Um, And for kind of the benefit of our listeners, I'm curious if you can describe how and when you anticipate the COVID-19 pandemic will end and what the next decade, two decades will look like in terms of our economy, our social life, our education, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I mean, there are lots of different ways to answer that question. I think in the long term, what's going to happen is that the virus is going to become endemic. You know, it'll circulate among us forever. It'll be like influenza viruses or cold viruses. And um, it's it's uh, over time, it's likely that the virus will, uh, the, the, the uh, more benign mutants will come to predominate. You'll get a relatively, you know, you'll get a, you'll, if you're infected with coronavirus and you're not vaccinated and you've not previously been infected, you'll probably be exposed to it as a child, have a mild illness, have some immunity, and then you'll have recurrent exposures like we all do with common cold. About 30% of common colds are caused by one of four species of coronavirus, four other species. Over the more intermediate term, I think we are, you can think of the pandemic as having three phases, the immediate, the intermediate, and the post-pandemic phase. We're still in the beginning of, we're still in the immediate phase. uh, And this immediate phase will last, I think, till the end of 2021, beginning of 2022, by which time we will finally reach this important landmark of herd immunity. Uh, which is that enough people have been either immunized with a vaccine or immunized from natural infection that the virus basically runs out of places to go in some sense. And so the epidemic force of the virus will have been uh, stopped. The virus will still be there. It won't be eradicated. It'll still circulate and kill people, but it won't have this great epidemic power. And then uh, the biological and epidemiological impact of the virus will finally be behind us. Until then, we're going to live in a changed world with mask wearing and gathering bans and periodic business and school closures and so on, testing and, and tracing and so on. Uh, but finally, we will put it behind us then. And then beginning, let's say, in 2022, approximately, we're going to have the intermediate period. And this is like a tsunami has washed the shore and devastated the landscape and the waters have receded. But there's a lot of wreckage that needs to be cleaned up. And that's what we're going to be facing. We're going to have to clean up the psychological, social and economic mess that the virus has caused. And, um, you know, millions of children miss school. I mean, they're going to need to recover their reading and writing and all of that stuff. Millions of businesses have closed. Millions of people have lost their jobs. Millions of young people have had, you know, their lives appended. Uh, And... um, And that'll take time, judging from the history of plagues, let's say a couple of years. And then beginning in 2024, I think it's going to be a bit of a party. I think it's going to be, you know, like the roaring 20s of the 21st century compared to the roaring 20s of the 20th century. I think people will relentlessly seek out social opportunities. uh, And I think there'll be a liberal spending and an economic boom and, and, um, you know, an efflorescence of the arts and things of that nature. 
Well, this was a really fantastic conversation. To any of our listeners who have not already picked up Dr. Christakis' fantastic book, Apollo's Arrow, I would encourage you to do so. Um, Thanks again to Dr. Christakis, and thank you all who have tuned in to this episode of Rocky Talk. Until next time. This podcast is a production of the Nelson A. Rockefeller Center for Public Policy and the Social Sciences. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and not of the Rockefeller Center. This episode was produced and edited by Laura Howard. We hope you'll join us for our next episode. And if you want more information, you can find us at rockefeller.dartmouth.edu.